0: Well, this morning here at uh, Cross Point, we're going to continue working our way through the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your notebook or a piece of paper or a pencil or the bulletin or whatever you want to write on, if you, if you don't, uh, we don't force you to take notes, but if you want to, you can get those items ready. This morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3. And uh, before we jump into chapter 3, I'm going to do a quick review of chapters 1 and 2. So I'll give you time to get your Bible open to Mark. Mark chapter 1, Jesus invited the first of his 12 disciples to come and follow him. In fact, that was the title we came up with for chapter 1. And if you're going to be, well, you may or may not be like me, but in my Bible, right next to Mark chapter 1, verse 1 now, I have written this little phrase, come and follow him. So I will know until I get rid of this Bible, which will probably never happen, or until I go to heaven, if ever I want to look back in the Gospel of Mark, I will know that Mark chapter 1 is about, come follow him. It's in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus invites his first disciples, John and his brother James, Peter and his brother Andrew, and then in the first few verses of chapter three, he invited a guy named Levi, who once we read in the Gospel of Matthew, he switches names. He's called both, Matthew and Levi. But I remember saying when we were in Mark chapter 1, to me, it's always been interesting that here we are, Jesus is up on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum, and five of his 12 disciples come from that little town up there in the middle of nowhere. James and John, Peter and Andrew, and Levi. Five guys who grew up together. Five guys who probably went fishing together. Like most young guys... Hey, let's just think about this. Like most young guys, they probably got in trouble together once in a while. These five guys celebrated Passover together. They all attended the same synagogue up there in the little town of Capernaum. So we named chapter one, Come, Follow Me. Turn the page, go to Mark chapter two. Jesus heals a man. This man has been crippled. The man's friends brought him to Jesus for some healing. In verse five, Jesus forgives the man of his sins. In verse 11, He tells the man to stand up and walk. We named chapter two, the outside always reflects the inside. So if you were going to look in my Bible next to Mark chapter two, verse one, I guess what you'd find written right there. You'd find written that little phrase, the outside always reflects the inside. So let's just talk about that. I don't want us to miss this. This is a big piece of theology in the Mark's gospel. So let me take a minute and work our way through here. When we repent of our sin and we put our faith in Jesus for our salvation. Now, for those of us who have already done that, you can probably remember the time when your faith in Jesus became real. You asked God to forgive you of your sin and you put your faith in Jesus. For the first time in your life, you came to believe that Jesus really was God's son. And you came to believe and understand that he went to the cross and shed his blood so that you could have your sin forgiven. Now, all of us are on spiritual journeys. Some of us, perhaps many, most of us have already made that decision to put our faith in Jesus. And yet, whenever we get a group together on any Sunday morning, there could be people here who have never done that yet. You're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. And whether or not in your mind you want to believe he really is the Son of God, and you're not quite sure yet if you believe he's the Savior. So I just ask you just continue to worship with us, and and we'll just follow you along in that spiritual journey. But let me explain this. Whenever that happens, that we repent of our sin and we put our faith in Jesus for our salvation, instantly the Holy Spirit comes into our life and He begins to change us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit doesn't come six months later or 16 years later. The Holy Spirit enters our life when we put our faith in Christ. And it's this, as He begins to work in our life and change us from the inside out. Now it's this, and I don't know how else to explain. It's this inside-out change that proves that spiritual transformation has taken place. The only tangible evidence that a spiritual change has taken place in someone's life. The only. Let me say that again. The only tangible evidence. That spiritual change or spiritual transformation has taken place in a person's life is a changed life. That's the only evidence that we have. Titus, if you want to turn in your Bibles or follow along on the screen, Titus 3.5 says this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Wayne Grudem is a professor of theology at Phoenix Seminary in, you can imagine where, Phoenix, Arizona. He describes this process of regeneration like this. He says it involves a definite break from the ruling power and love of sin so that the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin and no longer loves to sin. That's how he describes this regeneration that we talk about in Titus 3, 5. The Apostle Paul talks about the same thing in Romans chapter 6. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In verse 14, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you. And in verse 18, he says, we have been set free from sin. That's this whole spiritual transformation that takes place. Now let me sum it up by saying this, if someone's life, someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, if their life does not reflect significant external changes, it probably means that they have not truly repented of their faith. And or, they have not put their faith in Jesus. They may think they've put their faith in Jesus, but it isn't real. Because, and before we get to Mark 3, I want to make sure we understand this. This theological principle that takes place in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2 is just this. The outside of a person's life always reflects what's happening on the inside. Okay? We'll come back to that again in the weeks ahead. Let's turn the page. Let's go to Mark chapter 3. Now, even before, I keep hesitating here. Even before we talk too much about Mark chapter 3, I want to say something about this, this book that we hold in our hands. How many have one, have one of these with you? How many? Let me see it. How many? Whether it's the electronic version or the paper version or maybe some of us still have an old scroll laying around someplace. Let me say something about this book that we call the Bible. In 2019, that's where we're at, right, 2019, we have been, and I'm in the same boat when I'm sitting there listening to somebody else preach, we have become so accustomed to hearing our pastor identify a specific chapter and verse that most of us, once we understand the passage, we can turn to that passage in our Bible with little or no effort. And I could give you a reference this morning, like I did five minutes ago and said, let's all turn to Mark chapter one, and within a minute or two, everybody's there. But let's remind ourselves, when Mark wrote this, well, we call it a gospel, the same words mean good news, when Mark wrote his story about the good news of Jesus, it was different than the form we have today. When Mark wrote, there were no chapters and no verses, okay? Each of these 66 books was just a long, continuous story on a scroll, and it just went on and on and on. There are people who have studied Greek that believe that on those scrolls there were no uppercase letters and lowercase letters. It was just all Greek. There are people who believe there were no punctuation. In other words, there's no period that would tell us where one sentence stops and where the next one begins. So it would make a little challenging here. So it was hundreds of years after Mark wrote his good news about Jesus. In fact, it was twelve hundred years—that'd be twelve centuries—after Mark wrote his gospel that the Bible was divided into chapters and verses. Okay. The only reason it's divided into chapter and chapters and verses, is to help us find more specific passages easier. Now let me give you an example. If I said this morning, let's say say that this book we hold in our hands has 66 books, but it has no chapters and no verses. Now imagine the challenge if I said, let's all turn to that passage in Psalms that talks about the Lord is my shepherd. That's the only reference I can give you. And some of us are going to think, well, now, let's see, that's in Psalms. Yeah, he told me that, so I can get to Psalms. Is that in the beginning of Psalms, or is that in the middle of Psalms? Or? No, I think it's at the end of Psalms. No, I think it's in the beginning. But is it at the beginning of the beginning, or the middle of the beginning, or the end of the... Where? Can you imagine how long it would take if your book only had chapters? Or didn't even have chapters, didn't have verses. But see, it's a whole different world in 2019 because I can say, let's turn to Psalm 23.1. And within a minute, everybody in the room is in Psalm 23.1, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Some of you with those electronic gizmo things are there within three seconds. But for us old-fashioned people with paper, but I'll get there. Just give me a few more seconds. Let's say that uh, I suggest that we turn to that verse in the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of John that says, For God so loved the world. Well, now, where's that at? Is that, in the be- is that in the beginning of John, or is that in the middle of John, or is that at the end of John? And somebody says, I think it's at the end of John. Well, is it at the very end of John, or is it at the sort of like the end of John, or is it more toward the... But when I tell you this morning, just turn to John 3.16, within a minute, we're all there. So see the value of, that these chapters and verses place. The chapters first came to be, I can tell you this, in 1227 when an archbishop of Canterbury decided to put chapters in the Bible. So from the time Mark wrote his gospel in the beginning, the middle of the first century, until we end up with chapters, it's 1,200 years later. Then there's a Hebrew guy who puts in the verses in the Old Testament in 1448. Okay, so that's another give or take a couple hundred years after we had chapters. And then the New Testament, the Greek New Testament was divided into verses in 1555. So we're still almost 500 years away. Almost every Bible that's been published and printed since 1555 has chapters and verses. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is there are a few places where we now realize that they didn't realize this before. There are a few places where we now realize that chapter divisions could have been, or maybe they should have been, in a different place. Maybe the chapter should have begun earlier or later. Whatever it is, our passage that we're going to look at today, in what you and I call Mark three, this is one of those places that got mixed up. Now turn to Mark chapter three. Mark chapter. Mark chapter two should have ended after Mark 2.22. Or, it should have continued all the way to what you and I call Mark 3, verse 6. Or, if it stopped after Mark 2.22, then Mark 3 should have begun at Mark 2.23. Because there's a story here concerning the Sabbath that begins to get momentum in that last paragraph in Mark chapter 2. And then when we turn the page and go to Mark Chapter 3, it's the same story continuing because it's all about the, the Sabbath. Now, let me say this, and then we're going to jump in. You know, there are now, in 2019, there are now, imagine how, how long it took to put this text into chapters and verses. There are now Bibles being published with no chapters and no verses. Okay? So we, if we call that progress... Now, for part of me, it seems like we've taken a step backward. But the reason we're now publishing Bibles with no chapters and verses is not to cause problems and anxiety, it's to help us. There are people who believe that if we have Bibles without chapters and verses, we will just focus on what we're reading instead of getting all complicated with these man-made divisions. So I think there's a time and a place to have a Bible with no chapters and no verses. If I want to sit in my favorite chair at home, and just read scripture, I don't need to be confused about the chapters and verses. But if you're going to buy one of those Bibles, don't bring it to church on Sunday. That's the kind of Bible that you put in your favorite chair and you leave it at home, because if you bring it to here, to church, or you bring it to Bible study, you're just going to be all confused because you won't be able to find the references. So for our passage this morning, let's begin reading. I'm going to read, you can follow along. We're going to read, guess what? We're going back to Mark 2.23, which I think should be Mark chapter 3, verse 1, but that's just me. We're going to read from Mark two twenty-three through Mark 3, 6. Get your pencil ready. Verse 23 reads like this. One Sabbath, underline the word Sabbath. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, underline the word Pharisees, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? (coughs) Underline the word Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, underline the word them, that's a reference back to the Pharisees, And he said to them, the Sabbath, underline the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, underline Sabbath. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, underline Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1, again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand, and they watched Jesus, underline they, that's another reference to the Pharisees. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, Underlined Sabbath. So that they, underlined they, that's the Pharisees, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, underline them, is it lawful on the Sabbath, underline Sabbath, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they, underlined they, were silent. And he looked around at them, underlined them, With anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, underlined there. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees, underlined Pharisees, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, the story at the end of Mark chapter 2 is about what is legal or illegal, what is permissible or not permissible on the Sabbath. And that story flows directly into Mark 3, where Jesus is now involved in healing a man. When? On the Sabbath. Both paragraphs involve conflicts between Jesus and these guys who are over here like a little puppy. How many of us have ever had a puppy just nipping on your heels all the time? In the New Testament, they're known as Pharisees. You know who they are. They hang around church sometimes. They're never happy. Yeah, you haven't seen them smile in 14 years, but they're there. They never miss a service. They're always trying to find fault. Both paragraphs involve conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees concerning things that Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. Now, there's this this ongoing theological misunderstanding that was taking place at the time of Jesus, and it went like this, that people who have poor health and or complications from health, or if they're suffering any kind of crippling disease, any and all crippling diseases, there was a misunderstanding, and they were convinced at that time that the reason people suffered like that was because of sin. And it's wrong. It was wrong then, and it's wrong today. In fact, the best example we have, hold, keep your one hand there in Mark 2 or 3, wherever we're at, and turn to John chapter 9. This is the best example where Jesus points this out. John chapter 9, I think the verses are on the screen. Verses 1 and 2, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. In the next verse, Jesus makes it plain that this blindness is not the result of someone's sin. Verse 3 says, "It's It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, so now I want you to kind of, you know, at home the other day, Sharon was making these delicious blueberry muffins. Boy, we should have brought them for everybody, but I ate them all and there's none left, so... So just imagine you're at home and you've got these two big bowls out and you're making this recipe. So I'm going to give you a recipe. We need two bowls. In the first bowl, we put, this, we put this bad theology. Some people want to call it misunderstanding. But in the first bowl, we're going to put this bad theology that poor health is the result of sin. Okay? So keep that in one bowl. In the other bowl, we're going to put all these Jewish laws that declared that crippled and injured people Could not enter the temple. Okay? So now I want you to take these two bowls and I want you to mix them together. And that's what's happening here in Mark chapter 3. The reference to this goes way back to the Old Testament. Chapter 21 in Leviticus. Let me read five verses that talk about the fact that these... There are people who are welcome to come in the temple and then there's other people who are not welcome. And in Leviticus 21, beginning in verse 16, we find a list of people who are not welcome. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. Now these Pharisees, powerful people. They were this powerful religious group within Judaism who were here at the time of Jesus. They were known for their their emphasis on living devout lives. Let me tell you, I am all in favor of living the kind of life that brings honor and glory to God. Amen? Okay, but these guys took it too far. They believed that all Jewish people we expected to observe all of the 613 laws of the Torah. Now, here's my first question. I've got two questions for us this morning. Here's the first one. If the Pharisees taught that Jewish people were to obey each and every law of the 613, how did that guy with the crippled hand get inside the synagogue? since according to Leviticus, he wouldn't have been welcome to come in there. Mark chapter 3 says, again he entered the synagogue, and the man was there with a withered hand. Some of you have a Bible translation that says crippled. And they watched Jesus to see whether he, this is a powerful word, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. The answer to how did this guy get in the synagogue is found, I think it's in verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Now, there are commentaries, evangelical commentaries, that believe this man didn't just accidentally get in the synagogue. There are commentaries that believe the Pharisees got that man inside the synagogue to see how Jesus would respond. They actually brought him in just to see what Jesus would do. The Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees already understood and they believed that he he could heal. They wanted to know if he would heal. Now, there are many examples in the Gospels of Jesus performing miracles on the Sabbath, And each and every time the Pharisees get upset because Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath that in their eyes are not allowed. And that brings me to our last question, number two. Why doesn't Jesus, I've asked myself this question for years, why doesn't Jesus just wait until the next day? Why doesn't he say to this guy, hey, I know you got a bad hand, your arm, something's wrong. This is a Sabbath. Come on back tomorrow morning. I'll beat you I'll meet you right outside the door. He never says that. If he would just say that, it would kind of relieve all this anxiety and frustration that gets caused with the Pharisees. And the answer is when the, if the question is why doesn't he wait till the next day? The answer is because Jesus wants the Pharisees and he wants Steve Anderson and he wants all of us to understand The human needs take priority over religious law, even on the Sabbath. Instead of recognizing that the Sabbath was a day given to us for a day of rest and relaxation, the Pharisees had made it more complicated than the other six days put together. They had come up with these long lists of things you can't do on the Sabbath. Sabbath. It was frustrating to people. It was just all day long. You could do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can do this. In Mark chapter 2, that last paragraph, Jesus and his, is saying that his disciples' hunger was more important than the law that said you can't pick grain on the Sabbath. And in the first paragraph in Mark chapter 3, Jesus healing the man with the crippled hand was much more important than the law that said you can't heal on the Sabbath. Now, here's how we bring this to an end. That same thing is true for us today. It's more important for us to do good. Okay, let me say that again. It's more important for us to do good than to worry about the man-made rules of what's right and wrong on Sunday. So how is this going to work in my life? See the Pharisees. Well if you and I had lived at the time of the Pharisees. They they wouldn't have much time for us. Pharisees had very little time for Gentiles. Because we were considered unclean. In fact. It isn't that they would have very little time for us. They would have no time for us. Let's imagine that two weeks from now, we get a note inside the front door at our house. (coughs) Our neighborhood's going to have a big block party, and everyone is invited. They've got permission from the Sioux Falls City Council to actually set up barricades on the end of the block so that there's no traffic. And everyone is invited, and everyone's supposed to bring a salad and a hot dish and your own beverages. Everybody's invited. The Christian family that lives across the street is invited. The atheist family that lives next to them, they're invited. The alcoholics that live in the next house, They're invited. The recovering drug addicts that live three doors over here, they're invited. The Muslims who live down the street, they're invited. The atheists who live down the street, they're invited. The lesbian couple down on the corner, they're invited. Because everybody is invited. We have a block party. Now let me ask you this, what do you think will make a bigger impression on your neighbors and what they think about Christians? If you show up at the picnic and sit next to your neighbors who are drinking a beverage that you don't approve of, or if you ignore them and stay home because you don't want anything to do with non-Christians, what would Jesus do? See, I think Jesus wants us to develop develop friendships with people who need the gospel. I think he wants us to develop friendships that will hopefully at some time in the future allow us the opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. But you know what I've learned over the years? I'm a lot like you. I am a lot like you. In fact, I think we're all the same. If I'm sitting at home after a long day and it's 7 o'clock at night, I don't want somebody knocking on my front door that I don't know who they are. I don't want strangers coming to my door trying to sell me something. And I don't care whether it's religion or Pizza Hut coupons. They were just there a week ago. Or they're coming selling me discount oil changes for my car at a certain garage here in town. I don't want them. I've had a long day. I don't want strangers knocking on my door. But if a friend of mine, if someone who's taken the time to develop a friendship with me, someone who's already convinced me that they really care about me, If they want to knock on my door and talk, I'll jump up, answer the door, invite them in, have a cup of coffee, and we can talk for the next two hours. I think there's a high percentage of people all across this world who act like Pharisees, who go to church on Sunday and act like Pharisees Monday through Saturday and they're so quick to point fingers at non-Christians when the truth is Jesus went to the cross to save people who have not yet responded to the Gospel. Jesus, day in and day out, demonstrated that he was concerned about lost people. In Matthew nine twelve, it says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In verse 35 it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the Gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I've learned this in life. We don't need to tell people they're sinners. They already know they're sinners. I have never met anybody who didn't believe they were a sinner. They already know they're sinners. We don't need to tell them they're sinners. We need to tell them that Jesus loves them. We need to tell people that he loves them and that their sin can be forgiven. And the best way to do that, that I've discovered in all my life, the best way to do that is not to shove the gospel down somebody's throat. But it's to develop friendships with people who nobody else wants to talk to. It's to develop friendships with those people who live in our neighborhood that do things that I don't approve of. Go golfing with them. Go out for lunch with them. Become friends. And over the course of time, develop that friendship so that you can talk about it and you can tell them what Jesus means to you. I'm going to rename chapter 3. I haven't given it a name yet, right? But as long as I'm the one preaching, I'm the one that gets to come up with the names. My title for chapter 3 is this, having a heart for people who need Jesus. Whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Just become friends out there with people who don't know Jesus. It's so easy in church that we hang around with our church friends. I think Jesus wants us to become friends that don't know anything about the gospel. Amen? Amen. Our assignment for next week, read chapter 4, Gospel of Mark. We'll pick it up there next week. Let me close in a word of prayer, and we're going to ask the ushers to come and take this morning's offering. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and that we live in a world, not just here in Sioux Falls, and not just here in the United States, but all around the world, We live in a world where millions of people have never heard the gospel. Billions of people. The last number I heard was, I think, 3 billion people. Of the 7 billion people who live on this planet have never heard the name Jesus. So, Lord, help us to try and figure out how we can become friends with people who don't know Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you'd walk with us the next seven days until we can come back again next Sunday and worship you together again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.